Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. Today is part two of my talk with mastering engineer and studio violinist Eric Boulanger. First of all, there comes a report that some AI-generated music has actually generated six figures in revenue. At the Sonar Plus D Barcelona Festival of Music and Technology, there was a presentation that explained that U.S. emo band Silverstein had earned six figures from Fake Feelings, which is a thousand-song album made by Databots using an AI-trained neural network on their music. And then it was sold on blockchain song by song to individual consumers. Now, Databots started as a hackathon team at MIT in 2012, but it launched heavily into deep learning around 2015. Since then, they've been publishing research on their methods for creating music using raw neural networks. They always collaborate with bands, so this isn't like they're using unlicensed material at all. In fact, Silverstein has nine albums, so that's a lot of material for it to learn from. The 26-hour-long album has no lyrics, but it has vocals using random syllables and raw sound. Just to put this all in perspective, very rarely does a neural network create listenable music 100% of the time. Actually, the listenability rate is somewhere around 10% and requires a lot of heavy curation before you end up releasing any of it. Many musicians have the mistaken assumption that all they have to do is enter a prompt into one of the AI apps and it's going to come out with something perfect. That rarely happens. For instance, Databot spent months tuning hyperparameters, running about 100 experiments, before they eventually ended up with models that had high listenability. They figure it took 70 hours worth of music in order to get the 26 hours that they released on the album. Now, it turns out there are certain musical genres that do better with AI. Hardcore punk, math metal, tech death, and free jazz all work well as training data. And the reason for that is they use a limited range of timbres and instruments, but a wide variety of patterns, and this seems to help with the training. Also, there's a lot of noise and chaos as part of the style's aesthetic. That said, what I found interesting is that for years, people have been saying that blockchain tech was going to save the music business, and it never even came close to happening. This is one case where it actually worked, and worked well. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer forward slash handbook dash fifth dash edition that's go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer forward slash handbook dash fifth dash edition you can also find it on amazon and apple books and remember you can learn all about the latest in music audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com there you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events that's bobbyosinski.com. Now, all your users of the Sonar Digital Audio Workstation are going to be very happy with this. 
fresh off their combined Series B funding of about $90 million and a $425 million post-money valuation, BandLab has announced that it was reintroducing the Sonar name with the upcoming Cakewalk Sonar release. The upcoming Sonar release will have a new user interface and a high-performance engine that features unlimited audio, MIDI, and instrument tracks. In addition, there's going to be a new entry-level version called Cakewalk Next. The existing Cakewalk by BandLab will eventually be discontinued. As before, this is a PC-only product, at least for now. There's no word on pricing yet, but knowing BandLab, it'll probably be reasonable. There are so many engineers who are PC-based that just loved Cakewalk Sonar, and I'm sure they're going to be very happy that it's back. It was an excellent DAW, and may not have ever gotten the respect that it really deserved. It should be interesting to see if the people that used to use it and then stopped because it was discontinued now go back from their current workstation. Let's check back about a year from now, see what actually happens. My guest on this episode is Eric Boulanger, who's the founder of the Bakery Mastering Studio as well as a professional studio violinist. A protege of the legendary mastering engineer Doug Sachs, Eric has mastered Grammy-winning or nominated projects for a variety of popular and legendary artists. Not only that, he's a studio violinist with performance and recordings that range from orchestral and chamber music, Broadway musicals, contemporary pop music, and film and television scores. In part two of my interview with Eric, we'll talk about his unusual mastering studio, installing a familiar piece of equipment, the reason for the vinyl renaissance, why he chose the gear in his studio, and much more. I spoke with Eric via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Okay, so you open up the bakery. Did you have the lathe right away when you opened it? No. Um, in fact, a year later, when I opened the bakery, actually, I had no intention of cutting whatsoever. And for those who don't know, the bakery and my studio, which is in Sony Pictures, it's in the basement of the Thalberg building, which is a series of six screening rooms, small movie theaters of varying sizes. And I took over one of them. So imagine what a movie theater looks like and you take out all the chairs and you make a listening room. That's the main room. That's how I opened. That was the first one. That was, you know, that's the business end of everything. Not to mention, I didn't have a lathe then anyway. I wasn't planning on it. But business was good and everything. And uh, I don't know how to make this sound good. Aside from, unfortunately, slash opportunistically, Stan Ricker passed away in 2016. And Stan was... He cut for MoFi, JVC, and he had, in fact, going back to that story about me building the Mastering Labs lathes, the control system was the CompuDisc, and that was in the worst of shape for the Mastering Lab. And Stan was always a friend and colleague of Doug. I had met him even before we were working on the lathe project, but when I started building everything, I needed help. And the the first thing was as simple as like, the CompuDisc doesn't even come with an instruction manual. Mm. And Doug forgot how to 
use it. And so Stan was the one like over the phone all the time teaching me how things are supposed to work. Mind you, it's all broken, but I needed to know how it's supposed to work first before I could fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And then including he had, um, you know, every, everyone had two systems. So he would be sending my, his spare cards for me to try out in getting one system back up and running and everything. In fact, I copied the EPROMs off of his hardware and everything for what was on the mastering lab and finally nursed this thing back to life. And then after we got the mastering lab system up and running and whatnot, I'm guessing this must have been, I don't know, 2011, 2012. Stan started calling me for help because he was having problems. And then he called Doug and asked him if I can come out because the system was fucked. And uh, I had, at that point, because of what I did, if anyone's curious, <laughs> uh, for, for the computist, I took every single IC out, categorized it, got all new ones, and then dumbed, uh, because you have to use new, newly made ICs that do the same things. I had to dumb them down and slow them down because the old ones, Wow, it, you see where I'm going. Yeah. It, it, oh, it's man. a test. But the point is because I was going like brute force on the mastering lab thing. I had all of the parts in like my, my bin of like all the ICs that you would need. And so I was like, sure. And so I go all the way out to Ridgecrest, with, which is like a three-hour drive. Like Ridgecrest is by China Lake Naval Weapons sta Station in the middle of nowhere. Like there's a reason why they drop bombs to practice <laughs> there in California, because it's in the middle of nowhere. And um, that's where Stan had moved years before. And... He had his lathe and he was always cutting um, and everything was in his garage. And I spent a few days there living at his house and redoing the entire thing. And it was it was hilarious. Um, he, he had the same uh, language that I do. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> because he was a sailor and uh, he. Uh, couldn't believe once I was done, like, apparently there were like probably 30 functions and everything that this thing is supposed to do that didn't work properly for God knows how long. And, um, he had been doing everything manually to account for it. And then finally, when the manual control gave out, that's when I went and then I redid everything and it worked like it was out of the you know, he bought it new and he, the, the amount of cursing that was coming out of his mouth in, in, um, excitement was <laughs> unprecedented. And then I went back home after that. And lo and behold, all these years later, I buy the same lathe and the same system from his wife and daughter. Oh, that was your original question. Yeah, you were but, asking, I was cutting. Obviously, I, you knew it very well. 
Well, it, well, this was the happenstance. I'm giving you the full story, but when I opened the bakery, I didn't think I would do vinyl at all. Didn't matter that I knew how to do it. Like I was there, I'm mastering, make money. And uh, then the next year, that's when Stan passed away. And the family reached out to me actually originally for help with how do we do with all of this? And um, we figured it out. And apparently, according to his uh, widow, uh, Stan at least uh, told her, in his words, he didn't want the lathe to be a museum piece. Mm, yeah. He wanted it to go to someone who was going to make records. And that was incredibly important to me as well. And with how fast everything went, it was, that would have been 2016. And then it must have been in 2017. Happened to be when Stan's family held his memorial. Maybe a little less time, something around there. And uh, both James and I went out and it was like Stan was making it happen because by that time we had changed what used to be now uh, again, I, I lease a theater. We took out the chairs, it's the listening room. So where the projectors were, Sony took that out and that's where the lathe is. So that's the vinyl room and um, great environment. Um, and so, you know, it took a long time for Sony to do that renovation and get everything out. And then for me to rebuild the whole system, then design all the other shit and test everything out and everything. And uh, I, I don't even care. At the time, I wasn't admitting anything. But uh, the first record that came off of the new system, the new lathe in the new studio at the bakery was Rufus Wainwright's, what was it called? Shakespeare something. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, and... By the time that the family had made like Stan's uh, celebration memorial, which was back in Ridgecrest, James and I went and the proudest moment was delivering his wish, which was a week before that record actually was finally like the full product pressed and everything. And I handed it to Moni and I was like, I told you I'd do it and it's going to keep happening. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. It's closure. Yeah. Okay. So obviously vinyl is really, really hot these days. Why do you think that that's the case? Incredibly simple and incredibly obvious. It's an experience. That's all. Everyone wants to say, oh, it sounds better. I've cut records that don't sound as good as my high res. Like, you're full of shit. And never mind, by the time it comes to vinyl, like three generations later, like, really, you're going to... I know every audiophile is going to be heated right now with these words, but you're also not the one who makes it. But the fact of the matter is vinyl is an experience. I will ask you, when have you ever had to go through trouble to source let's say a new record that you want to hear something like whether even these days going to a store or these days, maybe, you know, ordering it and it shows up in the mail 
you get home from work, you're tired. Oh, wow. I've got the record that I spent like the last three days getting, and I finally can listen to this. You open up the package and then you get the whole artwork. You put the record down, you start it at side A, you go into your fridge, you grab a beer and crack it open and you sit on the couch while you're listening to said record from track one through the end while you're like looking at everything. When have you ever done that with Spotify? Oh, yeah. No, you never do that. Sure. That's my answer. Yeah, but you're talking to somebody here that's old enough that I lived through the, the vinyl age. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm glad that I told the story before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. So I understand it implicitly, but I used to go to a record store and you would flip through the records and you would buy something because the cover was interesting. Or you turned it around and the liner notes were interesting. And you thought, okay, yeah, I know the producer. I know, you know, whatever. Let right, me, right. Let me buy this. Because it, it, it was the, the total experience that you had. Now, what kind of confounds me well, in uh, this? The, the, well, the, the thing that's confounding about, like, how that was the case, and then it went away, and then it came back, I can respectfully say that I'm young enough that I was right in that dip where I never had that experience, yeah. even with CDs. Like, you, uh, the best thing was at Barnes & Noble, like that thing you could press and audition something. Like, you know. Yeah. But I never had that experience. And why it's come back is because everyone's figured out, oh, we had something right before. And they're seeking the experience. It's It's not... It wasn't even sexy to bring a CD home to your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. No, but an album is, definitely. I just read something recently where they did a study and they found out that somewhere around half of the buyers, the vinyl buyers, don't even own a turntable. So they never listen to the, the record itself, but they buy it because they're fans of the artist, they're trying to support the artist, and also there's that visceral experience that you get with it, even if you're not listening, just looking at the artwork and looking at the liner notes. I mean, uh, legally speaking here, I, I, I'm unsure of those uh, statistics, but the one thing I can report unequivocally from what I hear back from my clients is amongst my clients who, you know, they go on tour or doing concerts, I have heard that so much because uh, they're buying it at the show and they want a collectible. And a lot of my clients will have, um, it used to be the case, I guess um, streaming is um, changing things, but it used to be that they put download cards inside of the vinyl so you could get the digital download. That's getting less popular. Uh, again, this is, after me, but this is what I hear back from all my clients. But I think the main thing in that regard is it's people who are actually going to see them performing and the merch aspect. And, and they say unequivocally, they, they get people who buy the record just because they want the collectible, but they don't even have a turntable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can go down this rabbit hole and keep on talking about it for a while, but I want to get to something else. I was about to say, you opened the black hole, so. How much did Doug influence the equipment that you bought for your studio? 100%. What I'm getting at is, yes, I know orally that 
that happened. But did you buy something because you had used it at Doug's studio or were you just looking for something that was equivalent or how did that work? Uh, this is very simple to answer. And in fact, I'll post this for students. Like a lot of people, like they want to get into this field and like you find a class and it's always like a recording class. Like this is how you set up mics and everything. It's ass backwards. You should start like recording 101 should be mastering. Listen to a record that everyone loves and sounds really good through two speakers and figure out what that sounds like. So in that vein, this was a very easy process. Process. The first two things in my studio were the ATC 150s. Why? Because that's what Doug had had. That's what I bought. And I set up the 150s. Uh, and mind you, boy, we should find, uh, I'll get you photos of the realm. And you would have to, actually, I have photos of when it was empty, but totally empty room. I swear to you, it was two speakers on temporary like stands and Luckily, I had carpet, so you could slide these 150-pound speakers around by virtue of the carpet. One benchmark deck, also what we used at uh, the Mastering Lab, and a laptop feeding it, things we had mastered, high-res, and I was moving it around just to find where the speakers finally sound good, and it works. And I found that spot. And once I found that, and if you can imagine this, uh, like a movie theater, of course, you know, the floor is on an incline because it's theaters um, seating. And that's the foundation of the floor. So for me, like I had to find that spot, like kind of going uphill. <laughs> and still to this day, if you come to my studio, there's a screw in where I sit, and it's because it's where I lock in the alignment mic or measure measurement to anything because it is this exact listening position I chose when nothing was there yet. And so uh, I guess the lesson I'm teaching is you should work backwards. Start with your speakers. You know what you're hearing. And then... Amongst the gear, it, uh, the, the real answer to your question is the reason why so much of the gear is identical. It's nothing that came from the mastering lab, but um, it's identical because it's what I knew. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Work backwards, not broke, don't fix it. Not broke, don't fix it. And work your way back from that chain, from the speaker all the way back through everything else, specifically in the console and everything that I did uh, with the console and with Josh Florian, who uh, made our converters, is um, uh, I, I did make a few, I may say so, sexy upgrades to uh, mm. what we had been doing before. But I, it was it's all the same things. I, in terms of line amps, like we use the exact same topology, solid state and tube, identical. I built them from scratch because, but I benefited from the fact of I did that before. And, and yeah, I, 
I did everything in that Hollywood kitchen of mine over the summer of 2015. Um, and none, none of it is mastering. Uh, none of it is from the mastering lab, but the vast majority of it is identical and rebuilt. It's of the mastering lab. Oh, no, it, that's why yeah. I say it's 100% because of Doug. You know, it's funny you mentioned about going backwards. I co-wrote a book with uh, Ken Scott, one of the Beatles engineers. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Ken, in, in the course of everything we're talking about, he described the apprentice chain in Abbey Road and EMI. Mm-hmm. And you would start first as as a equivalent of a runner, T-boy, and then you'd work your way up to a tape op. Of course, you don't need that anymore. And then you'd become an assistant. And then they would send you to mastering for a year because the whole idea was you had to know what would happen on and you know how to. And it was hey, cutting hey. back then, so you had to know what to do then. So you would cut a good record, and right. you record something that was appropriate for cutting. And then you became an engineer after that. So it's very similar to what you're saying. It's a a little different, but... I mean, it's... You you can apply this to playing the violin. Like, you go to a concert and you hear a world-class soloist play a concert and you say to yourself, I'd like to play the violin. Like, that's how it happens. It doesn't happen like, oh... Random idea, Eric. I'd like to play the violin. Let me go on YouTube and look things up and start going that way. Like, yeah, right, right. Everything works backwards. And I mean, just the idea that, uh, I mean, it's just, I'm sorry, it's stupid simple. Yeah, yeah. You, if, if you want to be an engineer, put, find, and it, it doesn't have to be what someone else thinks, just put on a record that you think sounds great. Listen to that and make your speakers sound as perfect as possible with that. And then strive to do that yourself. Work backwards from there. It's really simple. It's artistry. It's not really engineering. It's a, it's a terrible term. How long did it take you before you felt like you were competent at mastering? Like, oh, I got this. I feel good about it. I, I don't know if I could exactly measure in time, but I'll tell you this. And to answer that question, it's going to vary from, again, this is artistry. It's not engineering. And so that's why it will vary for every single person who's an engineer. If I answered that question, it would have taken 25 something years because I view what I do today and what I do with mastering started when I was three years old, holding the violin for the first time is the point. And I don't know exactly when I was confident, but I remembered the exact moment when it clicked in my head. And it was for me specifically, personally, obviously, was watching Al mix a record. Uh, I, uh, by the way, I was working for Doug and I was just visiting Capitol and I was there with Al and he was doing vocal rides in the typical fashion of like, you know, nice long sustained note at the end of, and you're boosting that volume to make it all sultry. And you're holding that note to the last second. I was 
something just clicked when I watched him do it. And what clicked was that's for any violinists out there, they'll understand this. It's, it was the thing that I was always dreamed about from my violin teachers is when you're drawing the bow, holding the note until the last possible nanosecond, like, and keeping that sound. And what clicked was somehow my brain saw that fader and I thought of it as a bow. And immediately everything that my violin teachers throughout life have ever said immediately became applicable to engineering. And everything that like Alan Doug have always told me about engineering immediately became applicable to playing the violin. And in fact, I feel like that's when I really became a good player. And it was a mental, that was it. I don't remember when that was, but it happened. And then I think uh, all the people involved with uh, making that happen. Yeah, well, I get it. I get it. There are times when things click that you didn't, you know, all of yeah. a sudden. And, and they're different for everybody when that happens. But uh, it, yeah, things exactly. Make sense. Like, yeah. I mean, I can't be like, oh, uh, you, you want to become a mastering engineer. Well, uh, learn the violin and then watch Al Schmidt mix. And then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, 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 right. I've had a fair amount of mastering engineers on the podcast. And I always ask that question. How long did it take you before you felt like you're good at it? And I usually get an answer of somewhere around five years. And they say, yeah, at that point, I felt like I was good at it, which is pretty amazing to me from the standpoint that now you have all this mastering software and people think that they could do that just because they have the software, but they don't have the ears for it or the experience. In a way, you know, it's defeating the whole thing. It's And people don't understand then why, why doesn't this sound like Eric did it? I, I don't think it's uh, solely applicable to mastering engineers. I think it's applicable to mastering, mixing, recording, anyone who works on a record. The, you know, the software and the technology, of course, enables us to do a lot of things that you couldn't in the past. But the fact of the matter, the one thing you can't forget about is we are making music. We are not making software code hmm. like we are manipulating this and yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I don't personally do it, but hell, if there was a software application like uh, akin to, I guess, like a lander and what can't cut out of it sounded great to me. Sure. I'll do that and I'll charge the client fine, but it's got my stamp of approval. But the point is it's not how it was done. It's why it was done. And if you're not making music and making sure like this record and what's, you know, in the song is being conveyed, what the hell are we doing? You're just making music. That's it. It's, and you know, unfortunately that's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's one big thing. I, I don't think to be a competent engineer, of course, that you must be a musician and or good or bad one or anything like that i don't think that's necessary but the the thing like for instance uh what i'm getting at is if you happen to be an engineer and not a musician i would definitely tell everyone go to a rehearsal like a band 
ask someone who's like, put a chair, sit there and listen to it for real. Go to a symphony, be awkward, put a chair, sit in the middle of the violin section, whatever. Like there's, there's no shortage of when it's coming off of the ground, that sound and that feeling. And if you're, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I benefit from being a musician where I get to do that all the time. And that's even what I was talking about uh, earlier, that it screws my head on straight. Yeah. That's like my tuning is, but I benefit from the fact that I get to do that. But I, I would inspire any engineer who happens not to be a musician while you're working on music, retune things, just, Hear it for real in your face. And I guarantee you, it'll change everything you do behind the console. You can find out more about Eric and the bakery at thebakery.la. That's thebakery, all one word, dot LA. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.